The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm in Toronto with the president of Cream Minerals. Cream Minerals trades on the Venture Exchange under the symbol CMA.V and in the U.S. on the -the over-the-counter bulletin board as CRMXF. Michael O'Connor, president of Cream Minerals, thanks for joining me today on the Ellis Martin Report. My pleasure, Ellis. Thank you. Now, you've had some interesting developments since we last spoke on the phone about a week ago. What's come up with regard to your Nuevo Millennial project? That's right. We issued a news release last week, and in that news release, there were four drill holes from Ansibocas North, which is a potential open pit target on the uh, floor of the caldera. Of the four holes, the hole 9 missed the zone, which happens in exploration drilling. However, holes 10, 11, and 12 did hit the zone. All of the holes returned good values, and the best value was 68 grams per ton silver and 0.4 grams per ton gold over an intercept of 22 meters. Contained within that intercept and also contained with the intercept on the other two drill holes, 11 and 12, were higher grade intercepts of roughly 2 meters running 150 grams per ton silver and roughly 0.7 grams to 0.8 grams per ton gold. So overall, really quite good results. I'm very happy with them. When you take those within the context of a uh, open pit potential, it becomes really very interesting. Well, you've got high grades at surface, high grades of silver at surface, higher than last time we spoke. Uh, you're most definitely increasing the resource. Will this specifically define the company as an open pit resource project? I think it's a little bit too early to, to say that it's going to be strictly an open pit project. You know, we do have very good grades in the uh, quartz veins and the quartz stockworks uh, contained in the eastern wall of the caldera. You know, the prime determinant will be total ounces contained in the east wall of the caldera. Are there sufficient ounces there? And are the locations of the quartz veins with respect to each other amenable to underground mining? If that works out, then yes, we could have an underground uh, mining operation. Most certainly, at this stage, it looks like we will have open pit operations on the floor of the caldera. In addition to growing the resource, your market cap expands naturally due to the growing price of silver. We've had several people come on the program and predict that it's going to hit 50 or $60 announced by the end of the year. That's correct. I mean, currently our market cap is roughly $35, $37 million. This stock is trading approximately $0.27, $0.28 Canadian. There are 153 million shares out, so let's assume that silver rallies strongly, the share price rallies strongly, hits a dollar then our market cap is $153 million. So that should, hypothetically, directly affect the share price of your company as well. Any junior exploration company which has got a, an in-situ resource and which is working on developing or expanding that in-situ resource can be viewed as a, um, as a long-term call on the price of silver. 
So as the price of silver goes up, the price of the silver in the ground or the value of the silver in the ground is going to go up. So therefore, the net present value on a fully diluted basis is going to go up. Therefore, the share price sooner or later is going to have to respond to the increase in the net present value of the underlying the share price. In other words, it's a fancy way of saying that if the price of silver goes up, the value of the silver in the ground goes up, and sooner or later the value of the share price has to go up to reflect the increase of the value of the uh, silver in the ground. Well, we've seen some new shareholder awareness just in the last few weeks that you've been a sponsor of the program. It could be due to several different factors. How do you see 2012 playing out for those that are not yet with the company? For 2012, as I said, we have the new resource estimate pending uh, by the end of March of this year. Once we have that in hand, then we'll be able to finish laying out our drill program for 2012, and then we'll begin a a drill program. Initially, it will be 10,000 meters. More than likely, we'll add an an additional 10,000 meters to the drill program for a total of 20,000 meters in 2012. The big question is, where do you focus uh, those meters? And at this point, I think that we will probably put more focus drilling off potential open pit targets on the floor of the caldera than we will in uh, trying to drill off additional quartz veins in the uh, in the east wall of the caldera. Well, the open pit means that it's actually going to be a lot cheaper to produce an ounce of silver and uh, additionally create that sort of value for your shareholders. That's correct. It's going to be much cheaper to produce an ounce of silver. It's also going to be much easier to produce an ounce of gold. Typically in the open pit areas, we're seeing about 0.4 to 0.7 grams per ton gold, which is a nice credit to have because generally it will pay for all your mining and milling costs. In addition, if you're looking at an open pit operation, your capital investment is going to be dramatically lower than if you're looking at at an underground mining operation, simply because you're spared the expense of drilling the tunnels, the drifts, the adits, etc. That can be incredibly expensive. And of course, there's plenty of infrastructure in Nayarit State, Mexico. This is not virgin territory at all for mining. No, it's not. We're within, say, 14 kilometers from the airport, 14 kilometers from power. We're roughly 14 kilometers from water. There's a railway that is, I'd say, 8 kilometers from the entrance to the property, and we're 27 kilometers by road from Topeka, the capital of Nayarit State. So with respect to proximity and infrastructure, it's very favorable for the uh, development of the project because the capital investment required, or the infrastructure capital investment required, is actually going to be quite low compared to some other projects I've seen. You never name names, but I can think of one project in South America which is going to require almost 200 kilometer long pipeline to move the concentrate. I mean, that's going to be incredibly expensive. Now, the project economics will support it, but nonetheless, you're talking about huge amounts of money to do that sort of thing. In our case, because we're within 14K of good quality infrastructure, we won't face uh, investments of, of anywhere near that scale. Who are some of the analysts that have covered you lately? Starting with Northern Securities, Matthew Zalestra. He has a speculative buy rating on the stock with a one-year target of 47 cents. Uh, he issued his initial coverage in late December of 2011. Mike Bandrowski, mining analyst with Claire Securities, is currently issuing morning notes. Brian Zitzo with Byron Securities has a speculative buy. He currently doesn't have a, uh, a one-year price target. However, he has said that in subsequent research publications, he will have a, uh, a one-year price target. And most recently, Dundee Securities included cream in their summary of junior silver exploration companies uh, for 2012. So effectively, we've got four companies covering us in one form or another. Michael O'Connor, president of Cream Minerals, 
trading on the Venture Exchange under the symbol CMA.V and the over-the-counter bulletin board as CRMXF. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you, Ellis. It's my pleasure. For more information, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for another exclusive interview, this time with Eric Sprott, chairman of Sprott Money Limited. Mr. Sprott has earned a recognized standing not only as one of the world's premier gold and silver investors, but also as an expert in the precious metals industry. He chronicled the dangers of excessive leverage as well as the bubbles that the Fed was creating while correctly forecasting the tragic collapse of the housing and financial markets in 2008. Eric's prediction on the state of the North American financial markets has been captured throughout the articles that he authors titled Markets at a Glance. And today, we're pleased to have him on the Ellis Martin Report. Eric, welcome to the program. Ellis, uh, happy to be here. Now, with gold near the mid-1600s after a significant pullback, it's still higher year after year after year for the past several years. Why have we not seen some sort of parity or anything close between bullion prices and gold stocks, in your opinion? You know, there's a lot of people talk down gold, and unfortunately, the commodity markets, in particular the COMEX, had a lot of volatility in it in the precious metals. I mean, we saw, for example, on Feb 29th, you know, out of nowhere, fell by a hundred dollars. Those of us who are students of those markets realize that, for the most part, it's people selling silver and paper gold, and they can, in the very short term, can have a material impact in the market. In fact, it's it's interesting. You might have noticed that when the the bats company went public, the uh, the alternative stock exchange. <laughs> that the high-frequency traders and the algorithmic traders took the stock from 16 to zero in about 10 minutes on their own exchange. It just shows how kind of out of control some of this paper trading can be. And I, I think the fact that gold is volatile, as, as has silver, even more so, and the fact that the prices have weakened off their highs, it's kept people a little bit on edge regarding the uh, precious metal stocks. And I think until we have sort of a proven rise in precious metals, people are going to kind of hold their powder until they see a sustained rally, and I think that's really worked against the gold stocks for one. And the other thing is that there's competing products to stocks, and we're one of the uh, perpetrators in the sense that we have these silver and gold physical trusts, which each of them this quarter has raised $350 million for a total of $700 million into the physical metals, and I think if those weren't quite as popular or not available, then people to participate would be in the stock. So we've been a little bit of our own worst enemy on that side of it as well. Speaking of that, I'm one of the 99 percenters who's collecting silver at near $30 instead of 20 or 10 like I perhaps should have. I've got a real thirst for it. Sooner or later, to use your words, physical silver buyers are going to overwhelm the sellers. What happens then? Well, that's a good question. Some people have postulated that you know, there's just defaults on the COMEX because you have all these outstanding contracts. And there's, of course, no possible way of settling them through physical delivery because the outstanding position is something like 500 million ounces and we produce 900 million a year. In fact, there's days it trades between 500 million and a billion ounces in a day, even though theoretically for investment purposes, there wouldn't even be a million ounces a day available for investment. Someday, I just think the physical, both in gold and silver, the physical demand on the buy side will overwhelm the sellers and ultimately be at the fault somewhere. So you don't see these mining companies ever be able to cover anything close to that? Even if I was just to 
take, for example, the difference between 2010 and 2011. In the case of the gold market, which is the best example, it's a 4,000 ton a year market, which includes mine supply of roughly 2,700 tons and perhaps 1,300 tons of recycled material. And that number of 4,000 stayed constant for about the last 12 years. It's hardly moved at all. And yet from 10 to 11, we saw a difference of approximately 800 tons of buying, net new buying, from central banks and China. And I always went, well, who didn't get to buy the 800 tons that these participants are now buying? Did the gold coin buyers not buy it? No. Did the Chinese retail people not buy it? No. Did the ETFs not buy it? No. So who's not buying the gold? The only explanation I can give for the shortfall being met is that central banks are surreptitiously selling gold into the physical market and that there is an excess of demand oversupply already. And I think this is why certain countries now are, are questioning the policy of lending their gold. And I include in those Switzerland, Germany, Venezuela, of course, took back their gold. And other countries saying, well, maybe we should have the gold in our own country because it shouldn't be in some other country because we don't know what's happening to it. So I can't begin to explain where the gold comes from other than central banks are continuing to what they call lease gold. And when you lease gold near a central bank, theoretically you haven't sold it for accounting purposes. But the physical product is gone because it's been consumed by somebody who's not likely to sell it back to you. Well, then what we've got is virtual gold, which is worse than paper money. Totally. You lease gold to somebody and you say, well, I'd like to get it back. And then the guy's got to go to the market, and the market demand exceeds supply. Goodness knows what happens to the price, and or the guy just reneges. What are you more excited about now, silver or gold? Well, I've been more excited by silver for the last two years. I base that on things I see going on in the silver market, and I'll give you a couple of examples of that. The first example would be you look at the U.S. Mint sales, which are available on their website pretty well every day. For all of 11, the amount of dollars invested by the coin collectors in silver has been equal to the dollars invested in gold, which means that we bought 50 times more physical volume of silver than we have gold. But physical silver supply is only about 11 times that of gold per year. And if I was to put it in what's available for investment, because a big part of silver goes into industrial uses, the ratio is about six to one. Like there might be six times more silver available for investment than gold but people are buying it at a 50 to 1 ratio. The other example I could give you, Alice, is that when we, for example, did the last two tranches of our gold and silver trust, we raised exactly the same amount of money in each trust, 350 million each, 349. That means we bought 50 times more silver than we bought gold. There's lots of examples of that where you see the average person being equally disposed between putting the same amount of money into silver and gold, but it can't continue to happen because it's not available in that proportion. Do you know who your customers are? Well, I don't know who all my customers are because when we do our trusts, I'm not aware of exactly who's buying it. Of course, I would know who our internal customers are, but I just have to imagine that it's, you know, the everyday guy out there who sees what's going on in the financial world and what I'm referring to is just this printing of money and the lending of money to the banks, the propping up of the system, governments buying their own bonds, and there's only one conclusion to reach, and that is that the value of the currencies is being diminished every day, and how do you protect yourself? So there's enough of those people around that they've generated quite a bit of interest in gold and silver. What kind of opportunities are you taking advantage of now in this market? Well, unfortunately, I haven't seen a lot of opportunities in the last six months that have played out, but generally our thesis is we're happy to sell the commodity to buy precious metals stocks because I think 
the stocks have you know seriously underperformed uh, the metals, and we think there'll be a, a snapback to that when people realize one, we don't have an economic recovery in the world. In fact, we may be going into something quite the opposite to a recovery. To use European data and Chinese data and things like that, and then also people who just see you know the continual suggestion that we're going to print more money, which theoretically Chairman Bernanke suggested a couple of days ago that gee maybe the data is not as strong as we think it is. We might not be out of the woods yet, and we might have to be more accommodative in uh, quotation marks. I think you actually stated that you believe we're in a depression. Is that true? Well, I, I see no, I see no way out here. When I look at that, I look at the ninety-nine percent, and I look at what the opportunities are for the ninety-nine percent who must support the economy. <laughs> uh, you know, that's where most of your consumption comes from. But you know, when you look at the wage gains versus the increase in cost of living, it just doesn't equate. We had an example of that that just announced in the UK, where it said personal income on a on a real basis had fallen 1.7 percent. And when your personal income falls on a real basis by 1.7 percent, that means your disposable income has gone down much more markedly because a lot of people's income is already slated to pay the mortgage or pay off the credit card or fixed utility charges and taxes and things like that. So there's not. At the margin, the disposable income is a lot less than gross income. So you start losing on a gross income basis. The impact on disposable income is much more dramatic. No way out anytime soon, at least in the Western world. Well, to be brutally honest, I don't see it. I mean, I would say that pretty well all countries have called what's referred to as a Minsky moment. I mean, Minsky and economists said when you've expanded by increasing your debt, there becomes a point where your productive capacity can't pay off the debt. The best example of that, and the most recent one, was Greece. Oh my God, they got 450 billion of debt. This economy of 11 million people can't pay it off. So fine, we'll get someone to write off 100 billion, which they did. And the new debt is trading at something like 20 cents on the dollar. So you know, there's another default. The bond market's already saying they're not going to pay off the existing debt that they just issued. So that's where your productive capacity can't deal with the debt. I think Japan's in that situation. I think. Lots of European countries are in that situation. I think the U.S. is in that situation. That we have all these obligations—the known direct ones, and then the unknown indirect ones: social security payments that haven't been funded, pensions to civil servants, military commitments, Medicare that have not been funded, and these things are out of control. And I think the recent numbers are the real liabilities on a net present value basis are about eighty trillion dollars. And you can imagine a fifteen trillion dollar commodity trying to pay off eighty. Trillion of obligations. I mean, it's impossible. So we're writing off Western Europe and the U.S. What about Asia? What about China? Well, unfortunately, the data in China is deteriorating, and I think the most instructive number to look at is the China Purchasing Manufacturers Index that HSBC puts out once a month, and it has been in contractionary, contractionary mode for five years. It says that the manufacturing in China is negative. Year over year, and a lot of people would probably find that hard to believe, but that's what the survey says. In the last month out, it fell from something like forty-nine and a half to something like forty-seven and a half, which is a bigger decline than one expected. We had a report that Chinese companies' or earnings are down five point eight percent in the first two months of this year. So I happen to be in the camp that thinks that. China also overextended, overlent, and might have their own Minsky moment. Although certainly not to the extent of the more developed countries. 
Certainly, you've given this a great deal of thought. How are you feeling about the next five or ten years? How are we going to remake ourselves as a global economy? Well, it's interesting. I, I think it's just much easier to discuss five and ten years than it is, for example, the next quarter or the next half or something, because there's lots of influences that kind of rule the day over the short term. You know, for example, we have this supposed big jobs recovery, which I very much question, and the stock market's going up because everything is getting better, although, as uh, David Rosenberg explained, for every economic indicator going up, there's two going down. You could talk about housing, you could talk about durable goods, you can talk about consumer sentiment. There's all sorts of things that aren't good that are going on. FedEx warned. I think we're likely to get other warnings here, particularly you have to have a customer who's buying your goods. And if your customers are Chinese and European, I don't think in UK, for example, they're not doing well. And if you don't have strong customers, it's hard to keep things together. Not that I'm a believer that we have a strong economy anyway. I don't believe that here in North America. But when you look out five or 10 years and you see this mountain of debt and the disparity between the workers and the non-workers as, you know, we have 10,000 people every day retire. And those people probably are reasonably well off and at reasonable wages. But the guy coming in is getting shortchanged these days. I mean, when I sort of contrast what it was like when I started working, you could imagine getting a 10% wage increase for a number of years in a row. I don't think that condition exists today. And people coming out of university are all saddled with big loans going in. I don't know how one could honestly imagine that things will be the same in five to ten years as they are today. I can't imagine it's better. One of the people that's benefiting from all this is Eric Sprock. You are selling gold and silver. Well, we're benefiting from the point of view that, yes, people want to own gold and silver. As a firm, we're not benefiting from the point of view that gold stocks are not doing well. We tend to have a bearish stance in the market. Of course, the market's worked against us here for a number of months. So, yes, we have some wins, but we also have some losses. I think Given the passage of time and the facing of reality by the market, both theories that gold will go up and that the stocks will have a correction here will play out. There are few companies that seem to be extremely resistant in this market. Not many, but there are some. You think there's a rally going on right now with some steady growth? Well, there's definitely a rally going on. We know that. To what degree we have growth is open to question. I'm going to quote from a report that I read that suggested, I'm not really sure of the timeline, but let's just say they said, well, from 2007 to today, sales of companies are up by something like 5.8% and profits are up 95 Well, that's not something that will continue. That's a mathematical certainty. You have to have more sales. You can't have your sales going down and expect your profits to go up. And we could pick any number of industries, you know, whether it's the housing industry whose sales are probably down 75% from their peak or the auto industry this where the sales are down 33% from their peak. It's very difficult to think that we're in some great, strong economy. We're not. We're just bumping along in the bottom. And, of course, there's a lot of hope that it gets better. And every now and then we get some data, such as the, the jobs data, which, again, I question, that says it's better. But, you know, as the Chairman Bernanke said a couple of days ago, you know, we've had some good data, but we've always got to be vigilant because it may not continue, and we've got to remain accommodative. And I suspect that we've had a, a very benign time here in January and February because we haven't had the seasonal impact we normally would have. And I suspect that those seasonal adjustments made the jobs look better than they are. And once we get back to apples to apples comparisons, I don't think it's going to look that good. I suspect that's true in the home front, too. I mean, it was a great time to go out and look for homes in January and February this year when you wouldn't even have thought of it last year. So we may have pulled some of our economic strength into January and February, and once we get more normal 
apples to apples comparison, we'll find out that the first two months borrowed from the subsequent months. Do you think that we're primed for another event like we had in January of 2008? And if so, would that be a fatal blow? Uh, you're referring to the, the the market correction, is that? Yes, around January 17th, 2008. Yeah, well, that could happen at any time. I mean, I sort of sit back and I'm amazed that the market's done what it's done, and I tend to be a non-believer in the market. I always find it shocking that the market goes up on continually declining volume, which is not what's supposed to happen. If people are bullish, you're supposed to be investing more in stocks. It should be higher volume, but somehow we're in this miraculous situation where the volume almost goes to record lows, and yet the market keeps rising, and I can imagine that things could fall apart rather quickly. The economic data is not going to hold up, and all of a sudden we have this paradigm shift where, oh my God, we thought it was getting better, and it's not. And I suspect that Bernanke was kind of leaning that way, that he's waiting for some of his data not to confirm. He said, well, yeah, don't worry, we'll be ready with QE3. What positive message can we finish up this conversation with, Eric? Well, I, I think that when I look back at the trading history of both gold and silver, you see very unusual events that have happened. As you may be aware, there's a lawsuit against uh, J.P. Morgan and the HSBC that they manipulated the price of silver in 2008. Uh, that is a public document I'm referring to. There's been a three-and-a-half-year investigation by the COMEX about whether there's been any manipulation in the silver market without any answer, which is kind of mind-boggling that it could go on that long. There's very strange things happen in the paper markets from time to time that those of us who are students of it just can hardly believe that certain things happen when they do. The most recent one was Feb 29th, when all of a sudden at 10 a.m., just as gold and silver were breaking out all of a sudden, they had these massive reversals. For what reason? I'm not sure. You know, gold went down 100 bucks intraday, which is, you'll never see it go up 100 bucks in a day, by the way. Or I shouldn't say never, it probably will, but it doesn't normally move much more than 1% or 2% in a day. So I just think that sooner or later, the physical markets are going to overwhelm the paper markets and we'll hopefully get back to a sustained increases in prices yet again. I mean, gold's been the investment of the last decade. It's gone up every year for 12 years. Silver's been a little choppier, but it's actually gone up more than gold and on a percentage basis. And I'm pretty optimistic that when we get to the end of the year, we'll be at new highs in gold, we'll be at new highs in silver, and the stocks will react accordingly. So the market will withstand and overcome, if not overwhelm, this forced suppression by perhaps the banks and the Fed combined. That can happen more than once, can it? Well, you know, I think one of my peer group, James Turk, put it best. He said, you know, Eric, there's a managed retreat. There's just a managed retreat in the price of gold. It never goes up that much in a year, you know. I don't even know if it's ever gone up 20% in a year, but it's averaged something like 17 and never without volatility. There's always this volatility, you know, everyone hates it for three months and then it works its way back up and then they hate it again for three months. Given time and given what's going on in the world, the debasement of currencies, it's hard for me to imagine that rational thinking people don't realize that owning gold and silver is a way better bet than, for example, owning a bond. I mean, I just can't believe that people would own bonds when you look at the balance sheets of the countries of the bonds they own. I mean, they're, they're an absolute mess. As I mentioned to you earlier, just imagine if you're a consumer, and I'm going to say instead of the $15 trillion the U.S. government has, let's say somebody had $15,000 of income, and they're trying to support $80,000 in debt. I mean, there's just no way that it's possible to do it. The math just doesn't work. So, therefore, they got to keep trying to find some way of extending and pretending and suggesting everything's wonderful and good. And uh, that will, of course, lead to more and more concern about the currencies, which will obviously cause people to go to gold and silver, which 
done for the last 12 years. Well, Eric, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you today. It's been enlightening. I look forward to visiting with you again in the near future. Thanks for your time. Alice, it was all my pleasure. All the best to you. I've been speaking with Eric Sprott, the chairman of Sprott Money, own the only real monetary assets, physical gold and silver bullion. Here's the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. I've been on the road with Scott Drever in probably three different conferences, and it's only the beginning of March. Scott Drever is the president, the CEO of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SBL, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STVZF. Scott, again, welcome to the program. Thanks once again, uh, Ellis. It's great to be here. We are road warriors, aren't we? seems to be that way. Uh, We've spent a lot of time on the road the first part of the year. Do you find when you come out to these conferences all over North America that you get a chance to tell your story to new potential investors and meet with the shareholders and update them in person? What's the value in that for you? It's just that we have been doing a lot of road shows and telling the story of Silvercrest and its progress with respect to its cash flow and its expiration program. And what that does is uh, make people familiar with the story. There's a lot of people uh, across North America that aren't familiar with Silvercrest, and we're just trying to get as many people looking at the story as we possibly can because we think it's a great story in the silver space. We consider there's a lot of upside potential to it. Well, it seems like you've either been very successful at talking about your company or the results that you're finding in Mexico in Sonora State are outstanding with respect to your La Jolla and your Santa Elena properties. Yes, I think people are, are starting to realize that the combination of things that we have in this company make it a very, very interesting story. The Santa Elena has reached a steady state of production. We've got a uh, two-year program there to double the current production. And uh, La Jolla is turning out some really, really exciting uh, results on the on the exploration work that we've done so far. You know, with about 3,000 companies or more in the junior mining space, it's really difficult to find a small handful of companies where the risk has been minimalized. And I believe you're one of those companies where the risk is fairly minimal. That's certainly true. Santa Elena, we went to commercial production last year. So all the resource risk, the financing risk, permitting risk, all of those things that you run into in in mining operations and bringing them on stream have been put behind us. And with a heap leach open pit operation like we have, one of the risks are generally the last one to be cleared is the recoveries on the metals that you're putting on the heaps. And we're seeing recoveries track very closely the uh, metallurgical work that we did to determine what the recoveries would be. So that's kind of the last one out. Our operations are running nicely. We're putting more through the mill than we had expected uh, initially. And so the goal just keeps coming out at the end of the tube. Is it a matter of a natural flow of understating and overperforming? Well, we like to do that. We like to be able to look back and say, well, we said we were going to do that and we've done it. So yeah, we tend to understate a little bit and, and hopefully overperform. Tell us about the potential size of the polymetallic resource at the Coloradito target at La Jolla. Yeah, we have several targets at La Jolla. The one that we focused on, obviously, is the main mineralized trend where we announced a resource recently of 102 million ounces of silver equipment. There are a couple of adjacent targets to that main mineralized trend, one of which is the Colorado Dito. And we announced the results of some historical drilling that we were able to uh, confirm. We see there a uh, tungsten moly 
gold-silver system that has some sizable dimensions, if you can look at the, the historical data, and we have a number of holes planned for that. But generally, the container size there, I think, is about 500 meters by 200 meters wide by a couple of hundred meters depth. There's a lot of room for a large potential open pit deposit, but obviously we have a lot of work to determine how much of that container size has uh, the appropriate mineralization. So you really can't speculate about how that's defined at this moment. You can just say that you're looking. That's exactly correct. We have an 80-hole program going on at the moment for La Jolla, and I think there's 8 or 10 slated for that particular deposit. And at the end of that series, we'll have a much better idea of what it means and how big it might be. Is that 80 holes for 2012? Uh, Yes. Uh, We hope to have that finished probably by June. Uh, with the view to doing a resource update before the end of the year. How are you financing all all this drilling? We have $30 million in cash in the Treasury. We're well positioned there. Also, Santa Elena is uh, providing about 2 to $2.5 million a month in cash flow. So from cash flow and cash in the bank, we're well positioned to finance both our expansion plans and our exploration activity. You're well on the way to predicted ratings by some of the research analysts that have been following you. Yeah, we've made good progress towards those targets. I think Canaccord's analyst has put a $5.75 as a target price for us. Jennings Capital out of Toronto has a target price of $5.25. And Dundee Capital just initiated their coverage on us last week and uh, have put a buy signal on it but haven't given us a target number yet. So these are all recent updates, if I recall. That's true, yeah. We had a, um, a mine tour and a site tour a couple of weeks ago, and those analysts were on those trips. You know, they're talking from firsthand viewing of our work and, and what we're doing, and, uh, you know, they make their own judgments. Well, that's up about a dollar, dollar and a half or so since we last spoke at the end of January. We've been doing some extra legwork in terms of getting the story out, and I think we're starting to see the traction uh, grab hold on the, the story, and people are looking at the value that's here now and the value they see coming down the road. It's created that kind of interest, and we're trading good volumes. We're doing probably four or 500,000 shares a day, which gives everybody good liquidity. Nevertheless, as as well known as you may be in Canada and throughout us in the sector, you're still a new story to many in the U.S. We've started to focus on that because obviously the the market there, particularly for silver companies, is much, much greater than uh, what it would be in Canada. So we've redirected some of our investor awareness program to the U.S. We've been doing road shows in eastern U.S., in the Midwest, and also on the West Coast. There again, I think it's people starting to be aware of that story. We're also looking at the possibility of moving to a, a more senior exchange both in Canada and the U.S. What are you most excited about Silvercrest during the next 12 to 18 months? Obviously, the operations are important. It'll help us to build our cash flow and the uh, expansion plan that'll help us to to double our production are are very important things. And those are good, stable things that every company needs. The excitement, I think, is going to turn around the La Jolla project because our first indications on that is that it has the potential to be a huge deposit and uh, can be a significant game changer for Silvercrest. Bigger than Santa Elena? Absolutely. Uh, I think if you look at the numbers at La Jolla of 102 million ounces of silver equivalent, it's probably bigger at this moment than what Santa Elena is, although we still have the expansion plan to determine what uh, Santa Elena's ultimate size will be. 
I've been speaking with Scott Drever, the president and CEO of Silvercrest Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX is STVZF. And we're at the Royal York Hotel in Toronto, Ontario. Scott, thank you very much for joining me today on the Ellis Martin Report. My pleasure, Ellis. Thank you very much. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty's Buck Reef Project is an advanced-staged gold project currently in feasibility in Tanzania, with a commercial production target approximately 30 months away. With $30 million in their treasury, the company is prepared to further explore and develop the property. The president of the Tanzanian Royalty is renowned commodities expert Jim Sinclair. Visit our website, TanzanianRoyalty.com. That's Tanzanian TanzanianRoyalty.com. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of a company with significant assets of zirconium, rare earths, and rare metals, as well as gold and copper, in New South Wales, Australia. The company is called Alkane Resources. It trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Ian, welcome back to the program. You are in the process of attempting to raise $107 million in funds now. Would you mind explaining what you need the money for? It's actually broken up into three different components. Now, perhaps I should explain that first. For existing shareholders, it's on a one for ten basis. So if you own ten shares initially now, you'll get one new share and at a dollar ten. We've also done a placement of about 40 million shares, uh, which is at our capacity about 15% of the issued capital you can place at any one time. So that's a 40 million placement. And because the demand was so strong, I mean, really we were very surprised just how strong that demand was. We've actually done another 30 million placement, but that's subject to shareholder approval. So that's something that now won't take place until about the the 16th of April. So that raises us overall about $107 million. The key component of that, about $70 million is allocated to the development of our Tommingley Gold Project. The project is ready to go, it's ready to start construct, but we just need approval from the state government, but uh, we're hoping to get that in the next month. So with this funding in place, the project now basically proceeds to, to construction and then to development. About $20 million we've allocated to the Dubbo Zirconia project. That's our large zirconium niobium rare earth project. And not that I think we'll spend that in the next 12 months, but it's really to make sure that everything we need to do over the next 12 months gets us to a point where this time next year we're ready to go for that project. And really that means the final stages of the process development work putting a rare earth MOU in place for offtake, getting all the financing ready for the project, getting all the environmentals approval. So there's a lot to do in this 12 months, but we by the end of March next year, we really want to be in a position where we can press the button to go. So that's the major application of those funds. Now, are you going to have to go back to the market for more money, let's say in a year, with respect to Dubbo? Yes, we think so. I mean, really, it depends how we end up funding the project. And you know, we've said a few times now that we think there are a number of options to funding the project. I mean, we still are talking about a nine hundred million dollar Australian dollar project. One of the options we've got is to do a small strategic sell down on the project, maybe ten percent, and we believe we could do that at multiples to the NPV value. So that's potential two hundred and fifty million type capital raising out of that sell down and interestingly in the last two years what I'll loosely describe as government agencies and the the most well-known government agencies to us Japanese Korean and European agencies and these governments have set out to secure supply of strategic metals I think that the events that have taken place in China in the last few years have frightened 
many of them into the sense they've got to find non-Chinese supply. And these government agencies have been given the brief by their governments to go out and secure supplies for their country. And to do that, they're prepared to provide some loan funds, uh, project loan funds, at very, very interesting interest rates. So we can see another 200, 250 million coming from that source, leaving us another 400 million to, to find. And we think that will just be broken up between normal project debt finance and the equity market. And again, our target has been to try and keep that equity component below $200 million. So we don't really want to go out to the market and really blow the capital of the company out. We want to try and keep the shareholding as tight as possible so that when we get into production on Dubbo in three years' time, that the, the project then will generate very substantial returns and see that capital appreciation in the share price. And it's for your gold project, which should be generating about $30 million a year. That's right. Again, we did the road show back in the end of January, early February, into London, New York and Toronto and then we followed up here in Australia in the two big financial centres of, of Sydney and Melbourne. I came away from that really pleasantly surprised just how much interest there was. I expected the markets certainly in London and then maybe to a lesser extent in New York to be still very wary, very concerned about the European debt crisis situation but it was Almost the opposite. Certainly in London, there was a remarkable buoyancy. Most of the funds thought that uh, the market had turned, that said there was a lot of money around. So in fact, it was actually quite simple, quite easy for us to raise the money than a mixture of different centres where it came from. And I think that was pleasing that we've got the message across to what Alcane's all about, where it's going to go over the next five years, the bread and butter business of the gold operation, and then the real big upside coming out of the Dubbo Zirconia project. It actually became quite easy to market it. And at one stage in the two-day raising program, we were looking at the placements. We probably had a two-to-one offer in. So in other words, the placements were looking to raise about $70 million. We probably had an offer something like $140 million at that stage. And I think we could have got a lot more. So that was, again, very pleasing. And then great for us to, to say, well, yeah, the market has, has finally recognised uh, what Alcane's got and what the enormous upside that it's got. You have many shareholders here in the U.S., of course. You trade on the OTC QX. Those folks get it as far as it being uh, relatively, it's not risk-free, but the amount of risk is, let's say, less than other junior companies in the rare earth, rare metal space that don't have three or four offtake agreements in the offing like you do. I think, again, that's where the message has got across in the last uh, six months at least, and that Alcane is a very advanced project. I mean, it's not something we've started in the last three or four years. We've been working on on this project for 12 years or 13 years. We originally acquired it about 20 plus years ago. So it's it's been around and we've done all the hard work. You know, that's been really getting the process right, building a demonstration plant, getting product off that demonstration plant in enough quantities to be able to give to end users. Off lab scale tests, certainly you can get 10 grams, 100 grams of material, but you really have to be able to give these end users tens of kilos of material for them to process and to check. So the fact that we've been up, we've done that, we are at that last stage, we're leading up to sort of development, I think that does differentiate us quite considerably from a lot of the other companies in the business. One of the most interesting things about your company, the most compelling item about Alcane, and we've discussed this, is essentially, I'll just reduce it to this statement, you've become a lifeline for the economies of Japan and 
South Korea and many Western European countries. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. I must admit I hadn't thought of that. But it, it certainly, I mean, we wouldn't be able to meet all the demand of those countries. But in some of the critical areas like the heavier earth and even zirconium, we are, and we use the words, a strategic alternative option. That we, you know, we certainly are a distinctive option from China. And we believe we can supply into the market a reasonably strong way for a long period of time. You know, we often talk, you know, jokingly talk about the project having a 100-year life. But in reality, that's what it is. The resource is big enough to sustain that sort of operation. So that does give a strategic significance. That's 100 years. I mean, you can joke about it all you want, and you expect to be generating half a billion dollars a year, don't you? That's right. The cash flow out of that should approach $300 million a year. So it's a very good project. And like most analysis of mining projects, they tend to put a 20-year financial model on it. Uh, that 20-year financial model still generates uh, some very interesting numbers. You end up with a, a $6 billion cash flow over that 20-year period, a, a 30% return on investment. So it's a, it's a good project. It's a very robust project. You know, people often ask us, what happens if the... If the metal prices collapse, well, it would take a very significant fall in all the metal prices to get back to a point where we were, say, even just at break-even. And that's, again, one of the advantages of the project is the distribution. I mean, we get revenue from the zirconium, from the niobium, from all the rare earths. It gives us a bit of flexibility to withstand market fluctuations, you know, as we've seen in the last uh, six months with the rare earth industry. There's been some fairly major shifts in some of the rare earths. That really hasn't impacted on us. When you stand back and look at our economics, that really hasn't changed anything for us. The, the project is still a very viable and robust project. Well, it's not going to change your offtake at all. It has zero effect on that. That's right, correct. That's right. It's no impact at all. The offtake uh, is still very important in a number of areas. I know this is probably a question I should ask you in six months or a year, but do you expect to pay dividends at some point? Yes, we do. We've publicly stated that that's our goal. Uh, A lot of mining companies, a lot of junior mining companies won't say that, but we certainly believe that's what we want to do. We think there'll be significant capital appreciation in the shares, but we also think that long-term we can become a, a good dividend player. That will come from multiple opportunities. It'll come building up from the gold, certainly from the rare metals and rare earths. And then some of the other exploration projects we've got have the ability over the next three or four years to progress into development projects as well. So we do see ourselves, and our major shareholders are there and are involved in Alcane because they see the revenue stream off dividends as very important. Well, Ian, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining us today on the Ellis Martin Report. Uh, Thanks, Ellis. Great to talk to you again. Alkane Resources trades on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. That's ANLKY. I've been speaking with the managing director and president of Alkane Resources, Ian Chalmers. You can listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm in my hometown of Los Angeles, California with Dr. Don Robinson, the president, the CEO of East Main Resources, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol ER. Don, it's good to have you back here on the Ellis Martin Report. Ellis, uh, nice to see you again, and thanks for uh, speaking with us. I must disclose that I'm a cheerful shareholder of East Main Resources. Don, what's changed in the last year and a half, two years since you've been on the program? Right now, I think, just to start with, is our 2011 milestones. Last year, last spring, we updated the resource and demonstrated that our deposit was well in excess of a million ounces. There was a 62% increase 
in the deposit at Eau Claire, which is our Clearwater Project Eau Claire deposit. Most importantly is that the resource just wasn't a report on metal content, etc. The report was how it could be mined. And stunningly is that we found that the top part of the deposit could be extracted by a pit. And why this is important is that it opens up the gateways in terms of throughput and amount of gold you could get out of the ground at low cost and a, a higher throughput. More importantly on top is that the grade of the open pit is three to five times higher than all of the undeveloped projects out there in the Canadian Shield. That really is the game changer. And as we were demonstrating in our presentation that we just had about a half an hour ago, is that we are in the discovery business and the way we make an impact on the project is that you make the project larger. And in the last 18 months, we have made a significant change in the footprint of the deposit. And it's clear that the open pit portion of that deposit extends west of what we thought was the limit of that deposit and hence it's much bigger going forward and this is what we call the 850 zone. You don't only have to take my word for it is that multiple analysts are covering the project and covering the company and in particular Macquarie has us as their top explorer pick in the country which we're quite proud of. In the last 12 months we were able to eliminate the royalty that was on the project held by the Quebec government. So we now own the flagship royalty free. This is fantastic for our stockholders. And the final element is the ability to keep the treasury replenished at a premium. Last year we were able to raise $11.5 million, a 70% premium to the stock, which doubled the treasury for a 5% dilution. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you're operating in Quebec province. And that's exactly it. We have an unfair advantage. I call it the Quebec advantage. And this is part of the same story, but it's one that's more and more important is that where we're working in James Bay, Quebec, there were no operating mines. Now there are five gold deposits, one giant gold deposit that's owned by Goldcorp. We own the next two, and our flagship now is north of a million ounces and growing with expiration. And Goldcorp is your largest shareholder, aren't they? And that's the interesting point. We have a joint venture with them on a piece of the mine property, as well as they are the largest stockholder. And so the interesting point is that I think they're happy to see us grow our project at Eau Claire and grow the size of the project. They're making an investment of $1.4 billion to build the Eleanor project. So they've made a considerable investment in time, energy, and money into our district. Now, one of the things that uh, I had to take a second look at during your presentation was in a portion of your assets, you have, uh, I think, almost 2,500 grams per ton of gold. W would you elaborate on that, please? Because I still find that an unbelievable figure. What really uh, separates us from the pack is grade. These are very high-grade vein systems that come to surface. Our whole 98 there was an interval that came back at 2,580 grams gold. The interval amortized over a 55 meter width came back at 24 grams. The surface grade of the top of our deposit is 23 and a half grams. Translation, 0.7 ounces. Translation, again, it's a thousand dollar rock per ton. In the drilling that we've done and the trenching that we've done last year, we have found high grade material 500 meters or five football fields away that is in the sub-kilo range. 
within these wider envelopes. And that's been the nature of the deposit, is that there is high grade, it's a fine gold flower that has spectacular metallurgy, easy milling, and you recover it with gravity. Now, you've explained the geology to be similar to the Timmins camp, which is sort of at the end of its run compared to the Clearwater area. Would you elaborate on that, please? The reason we are in this district in the first place is that it's underlain by the same belts of volcanic rocks as Timmins, Valdor, Red Lake, etc. The difference was there wasn't any major mines that had been discovered. But it meant that at first we had to get on an airplane, fly 400 kilometers and land on a lake, set your tent up and start from scratch. The advantage is that we were able to acquire well over a thousand square kilometers of the most prolific ground in the district. And we know that at least one of those strips contains a multi-million ounce gold deposit. And the second one, we have another discovery in the historical East Main mine property. You're not one to sit behind the desk, are you? You're out here letting potential shareholders and institutions know about what you're doing, retail investors, what have you, but you're also out in the field. And if you weren't out in the field doing what you're doing, the resource wouldn't be perhaps as, as large as it is today. Both myself and my partner, Kathy Butella, you know, enjoy this business. That's what drives us, is that exploration and working with ore deposits is what we do. You have to get out and tell the story. I've been out for the last week coming down the West Coast USA to give presentations and introduce folks that aren't aware of our company that there is a Quebec advantage out there. In addition, it's fun to work with the rocks and work on these deposits. And right now we're taking advantage of some technology. And if you go to our website, you can start seeing 3D models of what these deposits look like. And the fact is that the pre and post drilling to show you, oh, I get it. I can see that thing is bigger. And I can see there's some trends in here that we should be testing. And after 15 minutes with a little explanation, I think the common investor or the everyday investor sees what we can see is that there's a lot of upside. Well, we've been covering your company on and off for about 10 years now, and I have to tell you, I have not seen the type of resource, the type of excitement that I'm seeing now. You say that you're being called perhaps the biggest story in Canada. I'm seeing that now, and yet we have a stock that's uh, at $1.25, a a very decent share price in quote-unquote this market, but yet uh, this could be the story that's on the lips of everybody down the road. Our job is to get right center square on the radar screen, and the way you do that is demonstrate that you have a project that's in the upper echelon comparable to the best of the best in the world. We now have a deposit that's north of a million ounces. Well, there's 296 in the world, of which one-third of them come from North America, and probably half of those will never be mined for various reasons of logistics, etc. We've got a nice project here that is right beside a road and is right near power, And I think in the last two years, we're demonstrating it's bigger than we knew. What's the rare metal story to East Main? This is something you uncovered today for us. Enclosed in the deposit, there are other byproducts. Not just gold, but principally there's a lot of tellurium present. And the folks that are making solar panels and the folks that are making microprocessors need this element in order to build their products. Just so happens is that there's a lot of it present in Clearwater, and it's fairly metallurgically simple to get it out. So we use it for science in that it's a fingerprint of the deposit, but in the future, 
it will benefit the economics of the project in that it will reduce the cost of producing an ounce of gold because you get paid for the byproduct. Let's talk about the share structure before we wrap up. You've had very little dilution over the years. Given that we've been here for 16 years on the Toronto Stock Exchange, our share structure is still less than 100 million shares issued. We don't have any overhang in terms of warrants. We've been able to keep the treasury full, and that's just keep your stick on the ice. Keep at it. Keep a steady program going forward. Don, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Alice. I've been speaking with Dr. Don Robinson, the president and CEO of East Main Resources. The website is eastmain.com. The symbol on the Toronto Stock Exchange is ER. That's ER.to. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 